Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 247. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are having a very full circle moment here on Monoreal Radio. Uh, we recently celebrated our five-year anniversary, uh, which sort of boggles my mind because it doesn't really feel like we've been doing this show for all that long. But when you look back at 2018, that was our first trip out to Disneyland. That was when I first started working as a travel advisor. So to put it in that context, it's like, wow, five years. Like Then it feels like a really long time. Um, so normally here is where we would do something like a different episode, which we sort of did when we did our billboard countdown with Joe and Tyler. Yeah. Uh, or we would be doing a bigger movie. Um, believe me, nothing would make me happier than to be discussing a certain cap to a well-loved trilogy right now. Um, but in support of the strikes, the writers and the SAG after strike, we're not going to be doing any new content. So we thought this was kind of the perfect excuse to do something that we've been talking about for a while, uh, which is to look back at some of Disney's straight-to-video sequels. So we thought that this was actually pretty perfect timing because these are films that do not get a lot of attention. Um, and because they were straight to video, they're not necessarily being made with the name talent uh, and the above the line crew that were working on the animated films. So these are the people that the writers and the SAG after strike are really in support of because they're the ones who aren't making a ton of money and who do rely on their residuals. So we thought that this was a good way to still be able to do the show while supporting this strike. And also we thought it would be sort of an interesting parallel to look at these films now because part of what has brought the industry to this point is relying on sequels and remakes and IPs. So we thought it would be kind of interesting to dive into the first set of films that were really doing that and you know back in the day sequel they never made sequels to their animated classics that would go to a to a movie theater right like the first one i can remember personally was return of jafar and you hear that you're getting an aladdin sequel and you think oh this is going to be a big deal and it went straight to vhs so um it, it's that would be unheard of now Right now, Disney is just going to make sequels and prequels to everything because they're out of ideas. So, like that's that's really what this has become. Like kids now could never understand Encanto. It's use Encanto as a perfect example. They would never understand why Bruno's movie went straight to VHS or DVD or Blu-ray. That's a great comparison. The other interesting thing. Um that I had never really even thought of. Technically, the first animated sequel that had a theatrical release was Frozen 2. And Frozen 2, like, just came out. But when you think about it, the popularity of Frozen, it was so obvious that they were going to do a sequel. Um, so it's kind of odd that 
especially in the dynasty era, these films were so popular, but they hadn't really considered it. Actually, I was reading an article um, Screen Rant put out and Michael Eisner and Peter Schneider were like dead set against sequels and didn't want to do them because they thought the creative would suffer. And I love the integrity, but they sold out pretty quick when it was pitched to them how cheaply these could be made if you weren't doing a theatrical release and how much of a profit they would turn. And I believe since um, they did all these sequels, Disney created a like an offshoot company to produce them. I believe it was called Disney Toons. Yeah. Um, so they weren't produced directly under Walt Disney Studios or Disney Animation. Um, that company only shut down in 2018. Um, so they've done sequels whether they're well-known or not, to almost all of the animated films. And up until 2018, they grossed $2 billion. So even you and I have been sort of harsh on the sequels and remakes lately, but that was kind of a cold splash of water to realize that this is not their first time at the rodeo and they knew exactly what they were doing. Yes, and we wanted to kick off this month or so of conversations with The Little Mermaid to return to the sea because our first episode was Little Mermaid and we really wanted to tackle some of the, you know, Renaissance era uh, sequels because like we said, you know, Return of Jafar, when we started talking about this, that was the first one that came to mind Um, because, spoiler, I I still love Return of Jafar. Like it's, it's still Like it's just a very good movie. Um... And that kind of, like, leads you to believe it's like, did things stay as good? Where did things go wrong? Um, You know, like you said, some of them can be made very cheaply. Um, And I think that we have to wonder, because admittedly, I hadn't seen this until we sat down to discuss it for Monoreal Radio. We have to wonder if one of the greatest animated films of all time fell victim to a cheap sequel. That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections. Ariel and Eric return to the sea with their newborn uh, newborn daughter, Melody, where Triton gives her a locket to remind her that part of her heart belongs to the sea. However, Morgana, Ursula's sister, arrives with her shark undertow and threatens to kill Melody if Triton doesn't give up his trident. However, Ariel and Eric fight them off as Triton turns Undertow into a piranha. Morgana escapes but promises vengeance, so they decide Melody can't go to the sea until she is found. So they cut off all ties to Triton and the Mer people. Triton drops the locket into the sea, and a sea wall is erected. Twelve years later, Melody is getting ready to celebrate her birthday and has befriended Scuttle and Sebastian, who Triton had tasked with watching her. Like Ariel, Melody is defiant and swims to the sea regularly, and on this particular day, she finds her locket. 
Morgana, meanwhile, sees that Melody has retrieved the locket from the sea, so she and Undertow leave the Arctic to pursue her, because that's where they were hiding out. At her birthday party, Melody and Sebastian accidentally cause a scene. So after, Melody shows Ariel the locket, who lashes out at Melody for disobeying her until Eric reminds her that they knew that this day would come. Melody steals a boat and heads to the sea with the locket where Morgana and Undertow are waiting. Sebastian, meanwhile, tells Ariel and Eric of Melody's escape while Undertow brings Melody to the Arctic to meet Morgana, who tells her of Atlantica and how she can turn her into a temporary mermaid. However, she needs the trident to make it permanent and convinces Melody to help her get it back. Ariel, meanwhile, tells Triton what has happened, and Eric continues... uh, or convinces her to turn back into a mermaid to help find Melody. While heading to Atlantica, Melody meets Tip and Dash, a penguin and walrus who are cast outs who hope to be heroes. Hoping to become these great respected heroes, they offer to take Melody to Atlantica. Upon their arrival, Melody sees a sad triton and questions how he could be a thief and reluctantly steals the trident while losing her necklace in the process. When Ariel and Triton see that the trident is missing, they find the locket and conclude that Morgana is behind all of this. Ariel follows Cloak and Dagger, the manta rays that Morgana sent to follow Melody. Melody arrives in the Arctic at the same time that Ariel and Flounder do, and they send Scuttle to inform uh, Triton of Morgana's whereabouts. Melody sees Ariel as a mermaid and sees that Ariel had kept the secret from her, so she angrily gives Morgana the trident, who captures Ariel and then Melody and Flounder. Melody's time as a mermaid starts to run out, meaning she will drown, so she is now locked behind ice with Flounder. Just before she dies, Tip and Dash rescue her and become the heroes that they always wanted to be. Queen Morgana, as she is now known, raises to the surface and sinks Eric's rescue ship as a furious triton arrives. Morgana turns Undertow back into a shark as Cloak and Dagger uh, drag Eric under the surface until he is rescued by Ariel and Sebastian. Melody takes the trident from Morgana and gets it to Triton, who captures Morgana in a block of ice that sinks to the bottom of the sea. Upon their return to the palace, Melody uses the trident to remove the seawall as opposed to having to choose between the land and the sea so they can all be back together. So, off the rip, what impressed me about this was it's funny because you're talking about how, and and you're not wrong, in almost every single one of these sequels, you don't get the above-the-line cast. You don't get the above-the-line crew. What's amazing about this movie is how much of the original cast returned, including Buddy Hackett in his final film role. Like, they basically got everybody back, almost everybody back. Um, which, like, y- you kind of wonder, like, if they were able to get that many people back, it's a surprise that they didn't try to turn this into a theatrical release. Yeah, that was a pleasant surprise. Within the first couple of minutes, I had to look it up on IMDb because I was sitting there like, wow, they really got this cast close to the original. And then turns out most of them are. Uh, but we're going to talk more in depth about the cast later and and the song because it does open on the song. Um, but this was 
you know, a pretty clear setup. I thought it was a relatively strong open. Yes. Um, I love the character name that they chose for Melody. I love it as a callback to Ariel's voice. I thought that that was like a really nice baton pass there. But what I felt was sort of lacking was a proper reset for the characters that we already know. Um, you know, obviously they set it up that Ariel and Eric are parents now. Um, and the focus is on returning Melody to the sea or bringing her to the sea for right. the first time. But it's so focused on that. We're not really focused on Ariel's return. I mean, once it gets to Sebastian's part, and I don't want to get too much into the song right now because we are going to break it down a little bit later. Um, Sebastian's excited. Sebastian's talking about her return. But there is absolutely no mention of her and Triton being apart. And that's such a huge part of the original film is that Ariel wanted to be on land so badly. She trades in her, not just her fins, but her family for that. And it's completely glossed over here about what a big deal this is that she's going to be reunited with Triton and her sisters. Well, they conveniently forget about a lot of things in this movie. Well, yeah, this is not the first time we're going to have to uh, suspend everything that we know. Yeah, starting with, oh, it's Ursula's crazy sister Morgana. Oh, my gosh. What a cringe line. On on so many levels, I mean, the fact that it had to be spelled out like that is just such bad screenwriting, but it is a Band-Aid over a bullet hole. Yep. Because even in the first, in the original, they allude to Ursula being in the palace she says as much when i lived in the palace and they never say outright that they were brother and sister in the live action they do give you the family history although that never really gets explored and i was hoping this would be like the perfect avenue for that where they do explore triton's relationship and and you know why he cast her out and instead, you get this whole new character. You never knew that there was a third sibling. And they still never really explore that family history. No, all we know, as we find out later on, is that Morgana had mommy issues, didn't care for Ursula at all, and yet at the same time has returned to avenge a sister that she hates. Exactly. So that's your so your whole plot of the movie is that she is here to avenge somebody that she did not get along with, that she did not care for, that she was jealous of. See, it would have made more sense if if the whole thing was I'm here to do what she wasn't able to do, which like even then is kind of weak, but you you sort of just live with it because this is kind of this is what your expectations are with a straight-to-VHS remake, yeah. or a straight-to-VHS sequel, I could say. But um, it's just so... It's so 101, and it's so... It's like, it honestly felt like an episode of Scooby-Doo to me. Well, it felt like one of those half-hour animated shows, which Little Mermaid also was at one point. Yeah. I mean, like, all of the... Um, Animated films got that treatment where it was either part of like a, a Disney Saturday morning or the Disney afternoon where they were doing the half hour um, 
show, which I mean, half hour, I'm being generous with commercials. They were 22 minutes. So, you know, you get in, you get out quick. And that's what it felt like here because there was no build. Forget that we don't even know there was a third sister. This movie just turned on its head so quick because as soon as they got to the sea, you get that one moment, which is completely understated that Again, Triton is seeing Ariel for the first time in a long time. He's meeting his granddaughter for the first time. Like, this is a big deal. And you do sort of get that sweet moment where he gives her the locket. But then Morgana just out of nowhere. With no rhyme or reason. All right, let's move on. Um, I also don't love... This movie basically retreads the original an awful lot, but they kind of flip the roles around. I don't love that Ariel is now so quickly to cast aside her family and the Mer people, who, as you have just pointed out, she had given up for Eric. This is such a huge moment, and it's like immediate, like, gives them up. We don't go to the sea. Nobody goes to the sea. She's become Triton. And I understand that some people will defend that as, well, she's the parent now. It it doesn't matter. It's counterintuitive to the entire story. When you made a movie that was so good and so timeless that you then had the desire to spawn a sequel, you can't bastardize the first film. And change everything about the character. I don't care if she's a parent or not. And that's exactly what they did here. And this is where the movie really started to lose me. I couldn't agree with you more. Except for one thing. I'm going to correct you. You said she gave it all up for Eric. No, she didn't. She gave it all up because she wanted to be in the human world. And Eric was a byproduct of that. I will not be starting this debate. Because... When you miss that, and I I know that you know The Little Mermaid is deeper than that, because obviously, you know, we reviewed it. It was our first episode. But in all the conversations you and I have had, um, we know that it's much more than just giving it all up for the prince. But I feel like that is the feminist argument of today, and people are missing the entire point. So I just need to throw that out there, that it was never about Eric. It was about being part of this world. But to your point, yes, she traded her entire family for this. And then here we go again. She's so... You just reunited with them, and now you're so quick to cut Triton off again. And I agree with you. The argument here is that, yes, she's a parent now. Yes, she has to protect her child. But first of all, He's got the trident. Yeah. (laughs) Like, why wouldn't you want him protecting you? Why wouldn't you just station him outside of the palace? Then you have no movie. Um, But to your point, that's what they are sacrificing in this sequel, is that you have taken one of the most beloved characters in the Disney canon, and you've just completely stripped away everything that she stands for in service of needing to address this plot point, we have to protect Melody at all costs. Like, yes, Ariel is a parent now. She is doing what you're supposed to do by protecting her child, but it goes against her entire character arc and everything that she learned in the original. And it's it's just so harsh to cut him off again. He's, like, completely in love with his granddaughter, and now he swims away, 
It's so sad. He drops the necklace into the ocean, which tell me this came out two years after Titanic without saying it came out two years after Titanic. Am I right? Um, But they, you know, they milk that moment for all that it's worth. Um, But you feel so bad for him. Yeah, I think if anything, I wish that they would have delved a little bit more into what this was doing to Triton than anyone else. And I think you could have made perhaps a better film. But we're going to fast forward now 12 years and we see Melody as a young girl. She's getting ready for her birthday party. And some of the animation is great. Some of the animation is kind of janky bad. And I hate to say that because I have, I miss the hand-drawn animation, but some of it is that straight to VHS janky bad. The janky bad part is the parts that are not recycled because there's a lot of that. But some, I think some of the best animation, really it's the best character design is Melody. She is so well designed because she looks just like Ariel and Eric. She has facial features from both of them. She is like one of the best drawn characters, just attention to detail. And you look at her and go, oh, that's Ariel and Eric's daughter. She's one of the best drawn characters low key that I've ever seen. I completely agree because they could have done the obvious thing and given her the red hair because you would think that's going to be the dominant trait, right? But I love that they took Ariel's face, Eric's dark hair, his eyebrows, and it's all Ariel's facial expressions. I thought that that was just such a smart choice to roll with that. Um, There's a couple things that I don't love about this here. Number one, she's 12 years old. And because we need to call back to the original, we've got Sebastian, who has been assigned to watch over her by Triton. Where does that sound familiar from? Yep. He does the teenagers Ariel was a teenager she was 16 Melody's 12 so I I get that we need to give us the classic Sebastian here but it doesn't work um that's number one the bigger error here is why is Sebastian's first instinct to look for her in the ocean when Melody uh when they can't find her for her birthday party She's forbidden from the ocean. So you have to assume that she never really learned how to swim. And yet Sebastian's first instinct is to dive in and find her. Because he knows where she is the whole time. She's Ariel's daughter. Okay. She's going to do the exact thing you tell her not to do. But how does she know how to swim? She obviously taught herself. You, you Are you going to question how she removed that iron bar from under the seawall? <laughs> I don't think she went under there with, with a saw. But yet, and and why she needs to replace it when nobody can see it, I don't understand. But she puts it back every day. Yeah. Um, I, that to me is the least egregious thing that they do here. What's to me more egregious is that this young girl can hold her breath for an obscene amount of time until she can't later on in the movie. And she does not question why she can speak to sea creatures. It doesn't seem strange to her. She does not speak to, she doesn't respond to them under the water, but she never questions why all of these sea creatures can just talk to her. You just hit it though. You just hit the whole, what would have made such a better movie. 
I will buy the notion that she can hold her breath for extended periods of time because she is part mermaid. So I think that sort of checks out. But the whole third act of Little Mermaid is Ariel communicating without being able to speak. Why not do the reverse here? Melody's story is supposed to parallel Ariel's. So what better way to do that than Melody having to communicate without words? Because then then it's just the same movie twice. But it is already the same movie twice. To me, this is where it would have worked in the film's favor when you have that parallel to her mother. I think at that point you just make a remake. If she's going to do the same thing but 12 years old, it's just the it's just a remake. But I mean it wouldn't have even been for the duration of the film. It just would have been for this one little scene. I think it would have made more sense if perhaps Sebastian was keeping an eye on her but was conscious to not speak to her. So as to not give it up that she could understand him. Or Sebastian is the one who's doing all the talking, much like he is in the third act of Little Mermaid. But she never questions it. It doesn't seem odd to her. But the thing is, it seems odd to everybody else because they call attention to it later at her birthday party. None of the other kids respect her. They're in the palace, mind you, these other kids. Of what descent... What bloodline, I don't know, but they are in the palace, right? But even they are talking about how she talks to fish and she does this and she's so weird. And she, you know, when the rest of the movie calls out how odd it is, and I understand you're you're trying to make us feel bad for her, but you're calling out something that already does not make sense. And instead of making us feel bad for her, I think you kind of question the integrity of what's actually happening. I would agree with that. Before we get more into the birthday party, though, I don't want to skip over um, Melody finding the necklace because Morgana can see her finding the necklace. And this is one of the most egregious things that they did. How how has she not seen her in the ocean before? Because clearly she's keeping an eye on her, much like Ursula did with her crystal orb or whatever it is that you want to call it and she also had flatsam and jetsam keeping an eye on ariel so she had eyes everywhere we don't know that morgana has eyes everywhere until right now is this the first time because of the necklace was it the necklace that calls to morgana or is it just that she has been keeping an eye this entire time This needs to be better explained on how it works on Morgana's end. My assumption is that Morgana was waiting for the necklace to be found because that's how she could use it as a jumping off point to expose the truth of uh, Melody's lineage, what her heritage is, so to speak. Um, But yeah, you're right. They don't. They don't specifically say, and it's not like the the locket doesn't like have any magical power, right? It doesn't have like a crystal in it or an orb or anything. It's like the beast's mirror. It's a way of looking in. Correct. <laughs> Excuse me, but even but even less magical than the beast's mirror, right? And I just realized that there is another error that um, when Ariel cuts off Triton, she says that. Um, you know Morgana's not going to rest until she finds Melody. 
why is why is Morgana able to see them and Triton has not torn apart the seven seas looking for her so that he can get back to his family? Like, that's the other thing. Everybody's just sitting and waiting for this to happen. Yeah. It's, you know, with Ursula, they always knew that she was there, but they were just kind of leaving her be. Right. Now they know Morgana's out there looking for trouble, but they're not looking for her. Yeah. So back to the birthday, they're getting ready. And what they did to Ariel is pretty bad in this movie as far as stripping away her character. But good Lord, Eric is even more clueless than he is in the first one. For as much as I love the original, if you've been listening to the show for a long time, you know that it is my favorite animated film. But even as a child, I recognized that, um, I mean, as a child, I wouldn't have articulated it quite in this way. But Eric is sort of half-baked. I mean, he's he's great. You love him. He's a handsome prince. He's always been the most handsome prince to me. You love that he goes to save Max from the fire when the ship is burning down. But other than that sort of heroic quality, Ariel gets everything done herself, uh, which is fine when you're trying to have a... When, when you're writing to a strong female character, but Eric doesn't have as much of a full arc. And part of that is from the fact that he doesn't really know how to communicate with her when she doesn't have a voice. And here they have just stripped him down even further to clueless dad. When he comes in the room and he's like bad hair day. I mean, why? Why are we like, I mean, Danny Tanner had more finesse than that when he was dealing with his girls but I I mean I love Ariel's response of if we were we're handling this get out clueless dad but um I I mean there's no lines and they just give him like nothing but I think it's so sad I think that's a product of its time though because I'll take a line from this is the end uh Jason Siegel when they're talking about when he's talking to Kevin Hart before they all get sucked into the fires of hell um when he's talking about how he's on the top rated sitcom and this is when like the rumor was starting that he was like trying to get out of how I met your mother and he's like but it's my birthday cake yeah this it's that's what that's what the sitcom dads were you know like they either were Tim Taylor or Danny Tanner. They were, you know what I'm saying? There were two extremes. It was either the the dad that would trip over everything and whoa, you know, like that, that, that sound effect is what those dads were. Or they were the still waters run deep fathers, you know, the Uncle Phil's, sort of speak, right? Yeah. There's no middle ground. So I think that they're really just writing to what was trendy at the time. But, I mean, at the time, those were all 90s sitcoms that you mentioned. This was 2000. Yeah, okay. So they wrote this in the 90s and released it in the 2000s. So you see what I'm saying, though? I I do. But I just think that they they done Eric dirty. Like, I, real dirty. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on that until we get a little bit later. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just put a pin in that until a little bit later. Okay. Um... What I what I really don't love about the scene 
either, uh, other than the dumbification of Eric, is just you do have that moment where Ariel recognizes that there is something more than having to go out to this birthday party slash coronation, because to me that's what it sort of feels like when she starts dancing with a boy. Ariel knows that there's something deeper here that's bothering her daughter, and they're about to have that moment, and then it's, okay, well, we got to get downstairs. Um, I just wish that we would have been able to delve a little bit deeper into... I mean, you can't have them have that conversation right now because otherwise, again, you have no movie. But just the idea of Ariel grew up without a mother. So now she's got to figure out how to be a mother to a little girl when when she missed out on that relationship. And now she's cut off her father, too. So and we have no idea who's who Eric's parents are or if they're in the picture at all whatsoever. You have Grimsby and Corlata, who I love that they brought back. You got all of your original cast, but these are basically two children trying to figure out how to parent, and there's really no example for them. So I just wish that we had seen Ariel struggle a little bit more and, and turn the focus back on her for a second instead of making it all about Melody. Um, and then once we get into the party, I just really wish that they had played Fathoms Below as the song. You have the quartet there. I just thought it would have been such a fun little wink and a nod to to the original. And it would have been like a nice, you know, sort of uh, symbol of Mer- Melody's character. Right. Yeah, I think that Sebastian clawing at the young boy that's dancing with Melody comes very much out of nowhere. Um, There's really no reason for it to even be happening. Why Sebastian just doesn't stay still that entire time? Because let's call it what it is. He's tied up in the ribbon that is around her waist that's keeping her gown looking the way that it's supposed to. So if he gets himself untied from it, he's going to undo the bow that's holding her dress together. I mean, yes, it's not going to fall off of her, but obviously that's going to create a scene. So why not just stay still? And and the other thing is, he gets flung up into the air. He's a very small crab, although well, he's got larger claws now, but he's a very small crab. And he goes crashing into Chef Louis's cake, it seems like an awful lot of destruction for a very small crab. Basically, he took this, it's like the size, it's larger than a wedding cake, and makes it explode all over the place. A crab that can't be more than half a pound. And then, of course, you get Chef Louis that is now starting to chase him, and we get the rehash from the original. And while this is happening, neither Ariel nor Eric bat an eye. They don't think anything is strange about any of this. I mean, of all the things that they retread in this film, I really don't mind that we get another Chef Louis Sebastian chase. Um, I feel like the damage should have come from Louis chasing Sebastian. I would buy that, you know, uh, well, I love that that Chef Louis has the meat cleaver in his pocket too. Even though he he baked a cake, he's still got it on him. For this such occasion when he's got to chase a crab. But then I would have bought the notion that, all right, Sebastian ran to hide behind the cake and Chef Louis the one who uh, completely destroyed it. Um, But you're right. 
Ariel and Eric are watching all of this go down. They're not batting an eyelid. No one. There's other adults in the room. There's Grimsby. There's Corlotta. Although Corlotta is the only one who puts a stop to Louis at one point. Yeah. Um, but no, nobody does anything. They just let it all happen. I kind of get why, though, you couldn't have Louis cause most of the damage because then how is that going to shift back to Melody and make her feel, you know, the, the whole point of this scene is she already feels, pardon the pun, like a fish out of water. So we're just reinforcing the idea of she feels more comfortable in the sea than she does having to carry out these social norms. Um, so the entire point is to knock her down a peg and, and make her feel really low and drive her to the ocean to Morgana. So if Louis is the one who completely wrecks the party, it's not going to work. Something else that doesn't work here is that we have Melody through dialogue. A lot happens in dialogue here. A lot in this movie happens. <sighs> yeah. We don't see a lot of things happen. We're just told that things happen or have happened. And not in a way where it just flows out of a conversation and we're supposed to pick up the pieces that they've left for us. It is so exposition heavy. Yes. Melody tells us that she has a strained relationship with Ariel. But their relationship doesn't seem strained. We don't see it strained. We don't see it as such. You know, we don't see Ariel have a poor relationship with Melody. We don't see her constantly fighting with Melody about going to the sea. In fact, we only see her have an argument about going to the sea once at the end of the party, which causes this whole thing where she runs off. So it's it just doesn't seem to work or make sense that you you're you're trying to plant that this relationship is bad but we've never seen it bad. What really would have been more effective and I'm only realizing this now as you're saying it is had they written to Melody and Eric's relationship and made them closer then you could have put her at odds with Ariel much more. Right. Because Eric, if he wants to go out to sea, he brings Melody with him on the boat. Ariel gets upset about it. Why are you doing this? You know, we can't take her. Oh, but she loves the sea and she's drawn to it. We can't hide this from her forever. And this could be like something Melody overhears a conversation behind a cracked door. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's a hundred ways that they could have done that. But instead it's, she just doesn't understand. It's like, it's honestly, it's like listening to Marnie's mother in Halloween Town. You just don't understand. Like, it's just, she just doesn't understand me. She's never done anything. Like, we've never seen conflict. You've just told us that there is. But we've never seen it. And when we see Ariel with you, the only awkwardness comes from you. It doesn't come from her. Like, there's no tension, there's no strain, there's no nothing. It, it's very Teenage 101. Um, no, and I would have really liked to see that between Ariel and Eric as far as Eric supporting Melody going out on the boat and everything. Um, especially because in the original, they've hardly got to talk to each other. 
they only speak at the end of the movie. So it would have been really nice to see their relationship develop a little bit more. And I don't just mean as parents. I just mean them as a couple. Because instead, the only beat where we really get that is when uh, Melody's run off. They, quote unquote, don't know where to find her. Uh, and Eric encourages Ariel to tell her the truth. Um and then Ariel decides that she's going to. Like there's no there's no thought process. Ariel just does it because Eric said so. Not because she recognizes the parallels to what she was dealing with at not even at Mel- Melody's age because Melody's 12, Ariel was 16, but it would have been nice to see her have that realization of how much she sees herself in her daughter and decide on her own terms that she's going to come clean. Well, and that's where I think we give Eric a little bit of a pass because Eric is the one that levels with her. Eric's the one that convinces her to become a mermaid again. So, I mean, I I don't I I think that yes, for for his reintroduction, it's weak, but him encouraging her to go back and be with her father, go back to Atlantica. That way he can stay on land and continue the search and that she can go and look for her at sea and bring her home. I think that that redeems him a little bit. If anything, it's a little frustrating. Like, why didn't Triton or Ariel think of this? It seems like the most logical thing to do. And yet, not at all. Right. Also, she cut Triton off. How is she communicating with him that she needs to be turned back so that she can return to the sea? Movie magic. I, but I, I hate writing it off as that because this, this is where it all falls apart when there are too many questions and not enough answers. You know, it, it was supposed to be that the locket was Melody's way of looking back. He has no way of communicating with Ariel you know, like I, I would I would have been fine if there was some throwaway line about a conch shell. Just blow this every time you need to summon me or something. And it just also puts too much of a spotlight on Morgana can see what's going on and Triton can't. She has a way of looking in. He does not when he's got the powerful Triton. Like it just it, it further collapses the film. Really, though. <laughs> Nothing collapses it more for me than when all of a sudden we're in the Arctic. Why? Th- this film takes such a tonal shift now that is just completely unnecessary. I, I don't get it. It Honestly, what this feels like is that they took two episodes of the made-for-TV animation and put them together. And it's like, well, we have these backgrounds from from the show so why not just use the glaciers in the film and and save money there no instead we get morgana who tells melody that i will turn you into a mermaid but it's only temporary until you get me what i need and then i will make it permanent and give you what you want where does this sound familiar well i mean it is her sister that we never knew she had. I do... And she still has some of her potions that we never knew were still hanging around. And that's why she's able to do this. I love that she gets called on that later by... Um, 
Undertow. Undertow. Yeah. Whose name I love, by the way. A great character. Uh yeah, with the with the Napoleonic complex because he's been turned into a guppy, which ah, we completely glossed over that in the beginning too. It's you, you know, Triton has his trident the entire time, but you used it on Undertow. Why didn't you just blast Morgana as soon as she surfaced? Again, then you'd have no movie. But um, I actually like Morgana's pitch here, though. Um, I I think it's pretty clever. We've talked a lot about villains who make sense, who have a strong motivation, who are very convincing. Um, And I think that's what happens here because she plays on, much like Ursula did when Ariel was pissed off, now Melody's pissed off. So she knows that she's very vulnerable. She knows that she's got a fractured relationship with her mother, albeit because we've been told that, not because we've actually seen it. But she does play on the idea of you're actually a mermaid. You've been lied to your whole life. Your mother's been lying to you, so you can't trust your mother, but trust me, I have the power to help you, which is yeah. how Ursula got Ariel the first time. Well, that And I do like that. Here's my thing. like I, I like Morgana as a character. I just don't like how she's introduced. Right. That's my big problem. And again, and I'm not going to say it after this, it's, it's the retread. I, I like that she plays up on the emotion. I love that she takes this as we have both pointed out strained because we were told so relationship, but she's almost like the, she's the hammer that drives the nail home. Like, yep, your relationship stinks with her. And here's why. Cause she's a liar and she's been keeping you from what you love the most. Like it's very calculated and it's very well done. Like I like Morgana as a character. I just wish that we would have fleshed this character out a little bit more, or maybe, we see her maybe the second movie this film starts with us seeing morgana for the first time and getting introduced to morgana instead of oh it's her crazy sister like you said when that happens on the saturday morning cartoon you don't think anything of it because they're just throwing stuff at a wall because they have to because it's a saturday morning cartoon and then you never see the character again to make an entire film based on that line there's so much more that they could have done. But, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Um, playing up on the emotion makes sense. Um, but, yeah, and and the fact that she was holding on to this magical potion and that, like you said, Undertow goes, wait, you had this the whole time. You could have turned me back this entire time. And she goes, well, we had to save it. And so, I mean, good honor. She was calculated enough and, and she made it she made it count when she needed to. Um and I like that she's not only starting to play up on the idea that Ariel's a liar, but she's starting to get her to turn against her grandfather, who she does not even know. Yes, because when she goes to see him and it takes forever to get us there, to get her back to steal the trident, because instead we have to spend a lot of time with penguins that never really develop. Uh, we get introduced to Tip and Dash who I guess were supposed to be like the new dynamic duo, the Flounder and Sebastian of this movie, and we're supposed to care about them wanting to be heroes. It, honestly, it, they could have done without this whole thing. It, it just, we spend so much time here. And instead, you could be focusing on the family story here, because to me, that's where it gets really interesting when 
uh, Melody sees her grandfather for quote unquote the first time, even though they met when she was a baby, she's obviously not going to remember anything. Um, I love how she gravitates to him because he looks sad and she gets to see him as we know him is this concerned father, but then he gets angry because of everything that's happening. So now she thinks that he's the villain that Morgana has made him out to be. It's such a great bait and switch. Um, I really love that scene. Yeah, that was well done. I I thought that that made an awful lot of sense the way that they did that, because we know that he lashes out emotionally or as Charlie would tell us, lash out irrationally. (laughs) Um, We've seen that, but I love seeing it through her eyes because we understand both sides of this. We understand Triton's pain and we, uh, and we understand uh, Melody's fear, Melody's second guessing, but Morgana sort of trips into truth over and over again. Yes. But with Tip and Dash, I mean, did we need them? No. I mean, I thought that they were fun characters. They were decent comic relief. And we'll get into cast a little bit more, and I'll tell you why I actually do like that they're in here. Um, But they get from the Arctic to Atlantica really quick. We traveled through song, and and all of a sudden, boom, (laughs) we're in Atlantica. No, and I mean, do we... Do we know exactly where Atlantica is? I mean, as far as The Little Mermaid, I don't think we have a canon location. But because there is a lot of mythology surrounding it, do we have any idea where it is supposed to be? I don't think so. I I didn't think so. I mean, as per the live-action Little Mermaid, we have a very good idea. I mean, not that close to the Arctic. No. No, it, yeah, it, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, To me, like Tortuga's not very close to the Arctic (laughs) last I checked, which is sort of where the live action leads us to believe we're like in that kind of area. In the Caribbean Sea, sure. Um, My bigger problem here is that as soon as we get to Atlantica, though, you have this really great moment with Melody and Triton. But there are two pieces of dialogue that are so poorly written that it almost negates any good that they do. Tip and Dash are trying to find Melody. And they're talking to the Mer people. For, like, an extended period of time. Right. And then they swim away. And the merman goes, Was that a penguin? <laughs> yeah. Even worse. Ariel sees Cloak and Dagger. Love, again, strong names in this sequel. Yeah. And this is where, like, some of the writing is good and some of the writing's awful. Ariel looks at them suspiciously. Now, if she would have just looked at them suspiciously and followed them and found Morgana, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. They're out of place, obviously. They're kind of lurking in the shadows. No, instead, she goes... I know them and starts to swim away to follow them. We never saw them in the first movie for 12 years, 12 years, really 13. If you think about the wedding and her getting pregnant and actually carrying this child, 
So we're going to call it 13 years. I hope it's longer because, again, she was 16 and Eric was 21. I'm, I'm hoping we've had at least three years go by. Well, supposedly this is 12 years, set 12 years after the original. So they were very mm. convinced with getting a family started. And I guess they conveniently forgot that she was 16. But let's not get into that now. This is going to, now you're going to open a whole can of worms. Uh, you... For 12 years, because we're going to just skip the whole gestation period, right? <laughs> okay. She, she was born a one-year-old, I guess. Um, you've not been to the sea. You've not been a mermaid. You've not been to Atlantica. So how do you know? How do you recognize these two characters who we have no reference to and have never seen before, yet you somehow know them and you haven't been there in 12 years? Right, because they weren't even there when Morgana first takes Melody at the beginning. It was Bingo. only Undertow. Yep. I mean, I'll buy the notion, of course, that Morgana's had henchmen. And like I said, it would have been way more effective if those were her eyes for what was happening on land or when Melody was going into the ocean. The other thing, though, <laughs> it, it, there's no way Ariel could have known them because Atlantica is so far from the Arctic. Morgana has been stationed in the Arctic. But we don't know how far the Arctic is because they seem to come and go pretty easily. Yeah. Anyway, I... I to me, that's not even the most egregious thing that's happening here. Um, you haven't seen Flounder in 12 years, and this is the reunion that you get? I mean, aside from the fact that you mistook his child for him, it, it's just completely understated that that's her best friend. Sebastian can at least go back and forth between both worlds, but you have not seen Flounder. You have no way of getting to him. Um, I could have also done without seeing flounder with a beer gut he looks like the uh the bootleg version from the rescue <laughs> rangers movie it's so sad um but yeah they they don't do anything they don't you know give them the reunion that they deserve and then ariel's got some nerve because immediately she asks them for help yep but that's their relationship. Everybody has that friend where you could go 10 years without seeing them. And the minute you need them, they give you the shirt off their back. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll buy that. I'll buy that Flounder has the heart of gold and he's willing to help her no matter what. But they did him dirty too. They did. What they do well here, actually, um, is they make Melody vengeful. Once everything gets exposed, because now Melody sees... Ariel as a mermaid, right? And this is where Morgana's plan is going to be put into action because Melody now sees that everything that Morgana had told her turns out to be true, at least on the surface, right? So you've made Morgana, albeit temporary, a very trust a very trusting, trustworthy character. And and you've made you've made her an honest woman, and you've made Ariel a liar, right? And you've played up on this emotion that Melody has been drawn to the sea and she's been kept from it. Now it's a strained relationship. I love that they make her vengeful, and the look on her face when she hands the trident over. Ugh, it's so good. I wish they had done that earlier. Not handing the trident over, but um, as far as creating that fracture with Ariel. 
that they've been talking about the entire time, but this is where you see it. It needed to come way earlier. Like what they should have done was Morgana found Melody anyway, and she's the one that lured her into the sea. Right. And played up on that distrust. So now Morgana has the trident. She's now Queen Morgana. Unlike uh, Ursula, that was turning the people into plants in her garden, she's just making them bow to her now. <laughs> bow to me! I... Don't do it, Saya. <laughs> I have no choice. Not gonna lie, I was it's hysterical the first time I was. I was like, "You finally got the trident. You finally got everything that you wanted, and this is what you do with your ultimate power." Ursula wasted zero time, and this is where it's like I, I see where you were jealous of standing in your sister's shadow because she got that trident, and she. Did not waste a second. She made herself large and in charge and completely took control. Started, to your point, yes, she started shrinking the more people down into plants. And this is what you do with it as soon as you get it. You make people bow. But at the same time, that does kind of work because it's what she wanted the entire time. She just wanted to be as powerful as her sister. And then once she gets it, she has no idea what to do. Well, she wanted to be more powerful. She wanted to get the trident and do what Ursula couldn't do. So yeah, in theory, like it worked. Like if it's me and if it's me and somebody walked into the room right now and handed me an almighty trident, I would just load up my bank account, retire, and then get myself a plate of nachos. Like that's what I would do. <laughs> like that's what I would do right now. Like at the bare minimum, I would like do something myself. I wouldn't be like bow to me. But that's where it does sort of work because her motivation is becoming more powerful than her sister. Period. There's no, it, it's really not a vendetta against Triton and his family. It's not a vendetta against Ariel. It's not a vendetta against Melody. So once she has the power, she doesn't really feel the need to go after them. It, that's all she wants is to be powerful. And, and it's, I got my prop. I'm powerful. Here I am. That's it. But the problem, she needs. But the problem with that is that that's what it ends up being at the end. At the beginning of the movie, she says she's here to avenge her sister, who they killed. As she said, turned her into a shish kebab or turned her into sushi or whatever the food term was. So you started off looking to avenge your sister, who you hated. And now it's, well, I just wanted to be more powerful than her. Well, which one is it? It can't be both. Right. Because you're speaking both in absolutes. This was my plan the whole time. Well, actually, it was this. The, 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 the true... Uh, the, the the fly in the ointment of this film is the poor screenwriting. And and it's a shame because when the screenwriting is good, it's actually quite good. When it when it, but when it misses the mark, it, it's it, you, you're not even you don't even hit the dartboard. Your dart's on the floor. That's how badly they miss sometimes. Yeah, because there are some things that really do work here, but one of the biggest misses you know we we keep going back to it is the geography of not really knowing where Atlantica is although okay see here's the thing that I did figure out we know that Atlantica is close to Eric's 
palace because number one in the first movie Ariel was able to we know she was collecting everything from the shipwrecks but she was sort of keeping an eye on him so you know that they're kind of close to where he's at especially because she swims up on shore when she rescues him and you do see palm trees by Eric's palace so you could argue that even the original Little Mermaid is set in the the Caribbean. So the Arctic really comes out of left field. But what really doesn't work for me is this end here where the glaciers are coming up out of the ocean. I love the idea that because Melody is a child of both worlds, she's able to climb them, which her mother now can't do because she's got fins again. Nobody can do because they're all bowing. So she's the only one who's able to slip under the radar because she can go on land. I really wish that they had been able to lure Morgana back to Eric's palace and Melody used it to her advantage there, knowing the land because she's been on the land. She's been trapped behind the wall and that's how she was able to deceive her and ultimately defeat her. Um, But it still does work that she's able to climb it because now her mermaid... uh, the spell has worn off. She's no longer a mermaid, which by the way, also completely understated the peril that she is in that she's trapped in this cave with flounder and, and going to drown. The, the, the focus should not be on trip and dash saving her and getting their hero moment. It should be that she's about to run out of oxygen or not oxygen. She can't breathe in the water when she's not a mermaid. And and it just, it happened so quickly. I mean, I realize that you're not going to like show her drowning, but this is a pretty bad situation. And I feel like they don't, they, they dip their toes in, but they don't fully commit to it. No. And I don't think that they fully commit to <clears throat> defeating Morgana because yeah, Triton freezes her in a block of ice and she sinks to the bottom of the ocean. That ice is going to melt. Especially if you're in the Caribbean Sea. <laughs> Like, yes, the depths are very cold, but they're not the frozen tundra. Unless that water is below freezing, that ice is slowly going to melt. I mean, are you going to make the case that by the time it does, Morgana will be dead? I, I guess. I also think that they were keeping the door open for a third movie. Absolutely. I mean, you really went for it. I mean... They lit- I mean, they they crashed a ship into Ursula, and and stabbed her. They killed her. They went for it in the original. They kebabbed her, as Morgana said. Right. So, I think that they were just trying to keep the door open for a third film. So a little weak, how they overall finish off. You know, your big bad in this movie, and then again, you have like. Just very weak, very weak screenwriting because you can make the case for Eric is Eric's kind of dumb. Oh, I, I don't think he's quite as dumb. And I don't I never found him to be that dumb. I think like, he, he's OK. I, I've never thought of him to be that bad. But um, certainly Triton is not dumb. Ariel, not dumb. So why at the end of the film, they go, we'll grant you one wish. Meanwhile, you've got the trident. You can do whatever you want. You can either be a mermaid and stay with me and abandon your parents, or you can go back to being a human and stay with your parents. 
This family's already been torn apart multiple times. Why are we obsessed with the idea of tearing the family apart? And why is it that Melody takes the trident and takes the seawall down and gives you that really cliche, now we can all be together. It's cute when like a six-year-old says it in a Hallmark Christmas movie. But in this case, not so much. And they all are like, what? I didn't think about that. How did you not? How did you not? Yeah, I I think it was pretty bold of Triton to give Melody that choice at age 12 without asking her parents for. Yeah. By the way, absentee grandfather, let's give him all of the. Well, technically, if Ariel and Eric are only still, you know, 17 and 22 at this point, he is really the most. uh qualified to make the parenting decisions so he should maybe hold all of that power well he's got the infinity fork so he can do whatever he wants <laughs> anyway right but no seriously melody bringing that wall down was the most mature decision that anybody made in that movie and by the way she can wield the triton they do say as much. morgana says it because she's a descendant or maybe it wasn't morgana maybe no, it, it was, was trip and dad no it was morgana triton's descendants can wield the triton so why wasn't it melody to take it and defeat Morgana. Instead, it was, I think this belongs to you, Grandpa. I mean, I like the moment as far as she recognizes her grandfather because the last time she saw him, he was flipping tables. So now you do have that moment of repairing their relationship. But she should have been the one to defeat Morgana and then blast the wall in that moment. And do you know what else this does? It further bastardizes the original film. I felt like Sally Field in Mrs. Doubtfire the whole time, the whole time, the whole time. <laughs> because if a descendant of Triton yeah. can wield the trident, you're telling me Ariel could have done this the entire time, not just in this movie, but in the first film. Yeah, they did really undo it even farther with that, didn't they? Womp womp. Like, he he didn't have to destroy her treasure trove. She could have just grabbed it from him. Are we ready to move on and talk about the, uh, talk about some cast here? Yeah, we have to before I really think about this too much and how they done everybody dirty in the sequel. I actually, to be honest with you, my, I think my review, I think my overall stance on this movie is going to change by the end. I I had I had a I really All right, let's just move I I don't want to bury it. Okay. Um we're we're only going to talk about a handful of cast members here. We're only going to talk about the, the new cast. Starting with um Tara Sharandoff who plays Melody. I actually really loved her in this movie. I I like how she played Melody. I like Melody as a character. Um I I I like the whimsy like in terms of building a character that we as the audience are going to fall in love with as a leading lady, I think that they did a good job with her. And I think that uh, I think that she voiced a very good character. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the character design before. It's absolute perfection uh, and it is topped off by a very strong uh, voice performance. Speaking of strong, um, I believe what you said is Tara's married name. Tara Strong um, 
to me, uh, I mean, she is a very well-known voice actress. Uh, to me, her most notable is Dill Pickles in Rugrats. But most people would probably know her from the Powerpuff Girls, uh, My Little Pony. Um, she did, uh, well, you would know her, uh, Barbara Gordon in uh, The Killing Joke. Uh, and she also, she's done Harley Quinn uh, in Arkham City. Oh, and she's our Miss Minutes. That's what uh, the Disney fans would know her probably most notably for is Miss Minutes and Loki. Um, so she's had quite a career. Um, but I, I did read an interview about how excited she was to take on this role because she was already grown uh, when she voiced Melody as a 12 year old. She was like 22 or 23 years old. I think older than that. She might have been like 27. But um, she had grown up on Little Mermaid and you know, she said working with Jody Benson was like mind boggling to her. Um, so she really appreciated this role. And I think that she did a great job with it. Um, Max Casella plays Tip, our penguin. Um, I thought he was fun. I thought he was good comic relief. You could see where they were trying to do the Timon and Pumbaa thing with them. For sure. Because this did come out after Lion King. So they were trying to absolutely have that that comedic buddy duo um and Stephen first plays dash the walrus and what i love about Stephen first in this film and why i think it's necessary that he's in this movie is because he is the original flounder not the flounder from the little mermaid he is flounder from animal house i love that the that that we got the original flounder in a disney film and he recently passed away a couple of years ago but he was funny he was a very accomplished actor and i love the i i love the character that he brought here and that they actually had him sing like it was worth having him here and i thought that for his comic relief and for what they pulled off they're not timon and pumbaa but I thought they worked together and I just like Dash as a character. Um, I see what they were going for with both of them, but I just feel like there were maybe one too many new characters or the way that they were introduced saving the rest of the penguin they just spent so much time there I, for a movie that gets in and gets out of everything else so quickly i feel like you could have just got them in without shining so much light on them and you know they would have still got their arc they would have still got to save the day um but i hate that that came at the expense of time with flounder or time with sebastian Clancy Brown plays Undertow. A lot of Disney fans will know him as playing uh, Sir Tur in Thor Ragnarok. Some people know him as Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob. Uh, Dexter. Uh, Dexter is, uh, is probably where we know him Starship from. Starship Troopers, Dexter, Shawshank Redemption. Like He's had a very accomplished career. But Undertow is probably my favorite of the new characters. I do like Tip and Dash, but I think that Undertow, because he's menacing, but he's funny, and he's, like you pointed out before, he's got a great name. Um, yeah, he, 
of all of the new characters, he is my favorite. See, now that's a huge get for this movie as far as an accomplished actor, other than, you know, obviously the original cast that they that they brought back. Because, um, I mean, again, getting Buddy Hackett back for this, it's so sad that this was his last film before he passed away. Um, I mean, that's pretty huge. But Scuttle doesn't have a huge part in this film. We, I mean, we really, we got through the whole plot and... We didn't even mention him, you know? They probably didn't use him for more than one day. Exactly. So he could have done it pretty fast. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, th- this is a huge talent to get for this film. Uh, and I absolutely love the character. I love the Napoleonic complex. I love that he's got so much at stake here because he wants to go back to his original size. I love that he's quite literally butting heads with Flounder, who is larger than him at this point. Um he was a great addition to this film. And that's where, again, I feel like you could have spent more time on him and you didn't need so many other new characters. You certainly didn't even need Cloak and Dagger. He could have taken care of everything uh, as far as Morgana's henchmen. Before we move on to music, I do want to mention Morgana too, because even though, I I mean, I loved hearing Pat Carroll's voice again. I, I like to me, as much as this movie rehashes things, it was worth it to have her do this voice again through this villain. What I bump on a little bit, though, is the character design. And I've always sort of bumped on that as far as Triton and Ursula being brother and sister because one is a mermaid and one is an octopus. So I appreciate that they made Morgana an octopus here. And I appreciate that she does look like Ursula. I'm I'm thinking they probably took some early Uh, concept designs of Ursula and that's where they pulled Morgana from but what bothers me is that she reads very goblin I mean obviously her body is the octopus they they did it the same way that they did Ursula but her ears are pointy her nose is sort of hooked and she she doesn't look witch to me she looks more goblin so i she's green too exactly so i wish that they had taken more of ursula's features or gone the polar opposite like obviously they made her much skinnier um they gave her more hair but i wish they had leaned into that a little bit more like given her like very long wavy locks and and just made her like a not not a copy but just take what we know, give us the bones of Ursula, but give her more of her own elements. And instead, they, they did that with the goblin, but now you you lose the believability that they are sisters. Let's talk about the music, because they had four original songs written for this film. So, I mean, you think about it, <clears throat> yeah, the budget is obviously going to be a lot less and then something you're putting in a movie theater. However, you did write four original songs. You did get most of the original cast back. So they did invest quite a bit into this. Isn't it amazing? Even a direct to video release. Isn't it amazing what happens when you actually maybe don't spend a big budget, but when you like dedicate just enough of a budget where regardless, like it looks like you put some effort in. It's pretty amazing. Um, well, to your point, who they did not get back is Alan Menken. Obviously, at this point, Howard Ashman has unfortunately passed away, so you're not going to get his lyrics back. But um, 
I think it shows that you did not have this dynamic duo composing. Oh, and I think that it shows, but I didn't find the music in this film to be all that bad. I didn't either, but before we get into the vi- the individual songs, I will say as a blanket statement, the songs, much like the dialogue, are very exposition heavy. You don't get the I wants in the music. You don't get a lot of character development in the music. And I feel like had Howard Ashman written these lyrics, a lot of the things that we've criticized in this film would have been addressed by having character motivation coming through. I will agree with you on three of the songs, but not four of them. I think that's fair. All right. uh, Down to the Sea is our first song. The ensemble cast is singing it. Um, I thought it was a sneaky good intro song. I thought it was a fun way to kick off the movie. And yes, it's very exposition driven, but we're also supposed to be seeing a passage of time here. So I, I kind of don't mind it because had this been a Broadway show, you wouldn't think anything of it. Um, I think that it's different when it's a film, but I thought that it was at least a little bit of an earworm and it was fun. I would absolutely agree with that. I did say it at the top of the episode that I think this is a strong open. Part of that is because of the catchy song. And even though it is very exposition heavy and I would have much preferred them to lean into the relationships a little bit more. Like I said, if Howard Ashman would have written this, you would have gotten an entire verse of Ariel not just singing about what it's like to have a daughter, but what it's like to be reuniting with her father. We would have gotten more feeling in this song. But for what it is, it's totally catchy. However, there is recycled animation above bound as soon as we get well not even the opening shot of scuttle flying over the water right uh that's the opening of little mermaid um as soon as we get under the sea you get under the sea (laughs) the octopus playing the clams uh a lot of the fish that sebastian is dancing with all of that recycled from under the sea for a moment this song to me it has the whimsy of Howard Ashman's lyrics. I love the back and forth. I just, I love the lyrics in general. Um, The duet here. Like, honestly, we did that list with Joe and Tyler, the top 100 Disney songs. I would have put this on the list ahead of a lot of other songs that had no business being on that list. Yeah, I would agree. Um, This is... Of the four songs, the one of them that gets a pass on not being so exposition heavy because this is the I Want song. Um, I love it as a duet, although I kind of wish we had got an individual song from Melody with her I Want on its own. Um, But I I love the two parts coming together. I, I think it's beautiful. I love the way that it's sung and you're right. To me, this is the most reminiscent of the original. I think it's great. Tip and Dash. This song is partly fun, but it's partly word salad that I can't understand. They talk and rush through a lot of the lyrics here, and I found myself having to like go back and rewind because I literally could not understand them. And after like the second time through, when I still couldn't understand what they were saying, I just gave up and moved on. Yeah. Um, this is for the kids through and through. Um, I don't think that they needed a song again. I I think it's too much focus on 
new characters. What I would have much preferred is if they had axed this and given Morgana in so- a song instead, which, by the way, they did. It's in the deleted scenes on Disney+. Plus. She did have a villain song. Um, and I, I love, I mean, I watched it. Obviously, I wanted to see Pat Carroll singing it again, or, or not it again, but I wanted to see her have that moment again. And I feel like that would have served this film so much better than this traipse through the Arctic with Tip and Dash. And here on the land is our, or uh, here on the land and sea <clears throat> is our final song. It's a fun way to end it. Um, it's not a bad song. It's not a great song. It's just a fun way to end a movie. It's no bop like under the sea, but I mean, you had to give Sebastian a little more to bite into here. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's, that's been, that tracks with the rest of the movie is that everything has come through in the exposition of the song. So that's how they kind of tied this one up in a bow. Final thoughts on Little Mermaid 2 Return to the Sea. So my initial note here is I like it, but wish that there was less that made it identical to the first. And I I stand by some of that. I think that I'm very frustrated with this movie because there are elements of it that I like a lot, but there are just too many things that they do that undermine the first movie, that it's kind of hard to get past that. I I think that they tried, I think they tried like hell to make a good movie. Uh, I think that that's evident in four original songs. I think it's evident in some some very good animation. I think it's evident in the original cast getting them back. Um, to me, it's, I don't, I don't dislike it, but I don't necessarily like it. It's not the most egregious. I mean, like it's better than Cars Two. I mean, it's it's better than the Good Dinosaur. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like it's not it's not saying a lot <laughs> because think about what you're comparing it to. Um, I, I I think it's just okay. Um, it kind of lives up to what my expectations were direct-to-VHS sequel, or DVD. Um, and it's kind of just okay. I'm sure a six-year-old loves it. But probably not anything that I will be going back to revisit anytime soon. I would agree. Um, here's something that might surprise everyone. Um, speaking of revisiting, this was my first time seeing this. And for as much of a Little Mermaid stan as I am, I never really sought this one out. I mean, when you think about it, I was 13, 14 when it came out. Um, I wasn't, you know, I, I, w- I never got over Disney. It wasn't like I was past the age. I mean, I, I was certainly past the age of the target demographic that this film was going for. But I hadn't aged out of Disney yet. It just wasn't something that I actively pursued. And being that it was direct to video, you know, I was never so inclined to be like, oh, let me go pick up this DVD. Let me let me try and track it down. Like that was the other thing. It wasn't such a wide release that I even really knew where to get it. Um, 
I don't remember seeing it out at like Best Buy and, and that kind of thing. It was probably something that you had to go to like the Disney store to buy. Yeah. I mean, like I, I certainly remember when it came out and I remember that kids really, really loved Melody. But like that was really the extent of it. And this was my first time sitting down to watch it. I had seen uh, for a moment. I had seen that sequence like on YouTube or whatever. Um, but that was really my only association with this film. Um, and the first time through that I watched it, um, I really didn't care for it that much. And I went, oh, no. The second time when I took my notes, I liked it a little bit better. I, I found a lot more things that I enjoyed and and more positive things story-wise. And I wasn't as critical. But now after we've broken it down, I've kind of landed somewhere in the middle. It's certainly not great. Um, it's certainly not what I would have liked to see revisiting these characters. Um, I think there are more misses than hits, um, to a point where this does feel very much cash grabby, but it's cash grabby on the business end. I agree with you where the creatives did the best they could with what they had to work with. And you do see the effort that's put forth in the music, um, and in the animation for the most part, I mean, there are some parts that look really janky, um, but where they recycle the animation is where it really shines. What I do really have a difficult time with, though, is what they've done with Ariel here. Um, I realize that, that this is not her movie. It is her daughter's. But that doesn't mean that she should have taken a backseat. It doesn't mean that they should have completely unraveled everything that they built in the original. Um, and that's where it's like, if you were going to bother to return to the sea, to return to such a beloved character, they should have strengthened her. They should have built on what we knew. Um, and that's where it's like, for me personally, she is one of my favorite characters and I just would have liked to see more of what I knew and more the more of what I fell in love with the first time than to have to strip her down for the sake of being a plot point because that's what she feels like. It doesn't feel like our strong heroine. It feels like she is a plot point in this and that's where um, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's a bad movie. It's It's definitely not great. And I'm definitely not going to go back and rewatch it a ton. Um, but I don't think it completely destroys the original. Full disclosure, I <clears throat> was able to get the first viewing in of our next film. Um, next next week, your, your, your tune is going to be very much in the opposite direction next week. I think next week's show uh, is going to be very much in a, oh my God, what have they done? But more on that next week. We're interested in knowing what you have to say about The Little Mermaid 2 Return to the Sea. You can let us know on X, Facebook, Instagram at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. When we were planning our first family trip to Disney World, uh, Jackie was the first person that we thought of. Jackie helped us with every step of the planning, and she helped us pick the right hotel for our itinerary and our budget. She also gave us uh, great recommendations when it came to scheduling our parks, our dining reservations, and the attractions. 
These days it feels like there's a lot that goes into planning a Disney trip and there's a lot that we just didn't know about Disney World and we're just so thankful for Jackie's advice and making it all a little bit easier. Yeah, when we got to the property, we, we realized we wanted to add on another park day. So we texted Jackie early in the morning and she got back to us right away and that really helped us make it happen. We had some amazing meals and drinks. We went to Cinderella's Royal Table. We went to Oga's Cantina. We rode Rise of the Resistance without waiting on a long line. And on Jackie's recommendation, we saw the Epcot fireworks from the Skyliner. This was an unforgettable family trip to Disney World and Jackie made it happen. Thank you, Jackie. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can DM me through any of our social media outlets or you can email me directly at monorealradio at gmail.com. News this week. I did not tell you this bit of news. No, you didn't. And you know how much I love surprises on this show. We are losing more titles from Disney Plus at the end of this month. At this point, that's not a surprise. We would lose titles low-key because they would have to go and finish out a license with another streamer before they came back. Now, they haven't said what we're losing yet, but supposedly we are losing titles at the end of this month. What's very interesting is that Disney announced that starting in September, I believe it's September 28th, actually, they're starting to take pre-orders on Blu-ray sales. (laughs) For The Mandalorian, for WandaVision, and for Loki. So why would you be selling Blu-rays and 4K ultra-high-def copies of content that was made direct for the streamer that was supposed to be evergreen that was never going to come down? Why would anybody spend money on a physical copy of something that's always supposed to be there? What this tells me is that eventually those titles will come down. And if you want to see them, you're going to have to buy the Blu-rays. I think that High School Musical, the musical, the series is going to come down. And it will go to Blu-ray. You have to wonder, is there smoke to the fire of the rumor that Disney Plus will slowly disintegrate? I'm not sure that that's going to happen, but I also don't think that the hits, we already know that that the exclusive content that was never supposed to come down has already come down. They did that in the first wave of things getting deleted. But I'm starting to think that when you get in, it, the major hits, maybe they're not safe either because they see a second life in home video release. Um, there's a couple of things I want to respond to here, starting with... High School Musical, the blah, 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 blah. Um, I would agree with you there that that's coming down because that's going to run into the same licensing issues that you have with Glee because there is so much music and so many royalties that you have to pay. Those are just very costly shows. So I think that's probably a good contender for the chopping block. Uh, I'm actually going to disagree with you. I think that this is Disney's way of trying to counterbalance for people canceling their subscriptions. And I think that they're anticipating more cancellations. And now they're trying to double dip by saying, okay, if you're not going to subscribe to watch them, you can have them 
you know, uh, as your own piece of media to take home. Uh, is Walt snoring picking up in my microphone? I don't think so. Because <laughs> you're, you're looking. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. It's incredibly distracting. Puppy snores are the cutest thing, but he is just getting loud. So I apologize if that's picking up. Um, what's interesting to me, I think, is that they just assume that everybody still has a DVD or blue blu-ray player i mean i know a lot of them you can play um through a gaming console but i think that that's a bold assumption to make that people have still hung on to their uh media players like that i've said it a million times if you want if you want a million dollar idea for free this is the perfect time for the resurgence of a blockbuster video or a hollywood video if you pair some sort of video rental service with like a pizza parlor or or you know ice cream shop or something where it's a one-stop shop on a Friday night your kids get out of the baseball game you take them there they rent a movie you get pizza and ice cream and bring it home it's a huge money maker I think we're going back to the age of video rentals I think I, you're going I back to the so, age because of the how store. else are they going to start making money off of their properties if you're going to pull them off of streaming well, that was the first bit of news. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, we also got a opening date for Tiana's Palace. It's going to be opening at Disneyland. I believe you said it was September 7th. September 7th. Um, yes. It, it looks amazing. Like, I love all of the artwork I've seen from it so far. Like, they really did capture that New Orleans flair. But what I learned, I was actually reading one of my um, vacation planner emails. Um I didn't realize that what was there prior, it was, it, obviously it's in New Orleans Square in Disneyland, and it was heavily themed based off of the Big Easy, but they actually had the animators go and take inspiration there when they were working on Princess and the Frog. So this is like a very full circle moment now that the film that, or, or the restaurant that you drew inspiration of for the film is now getting put back into the restaurant in its design. So I thought that that was kind of cool and kind of interesting. And it's something that I wish Disney had put out there earlier on because we've said, you know, other than having Tiana and Prince Naveen in some of the parades, Princess and the Frog has been seriously lacking in the parks. And, you know... It deserved so much more than what it's got because it was the return to hand-drawn animation. So if Disney had, you know, shown more of a spotlight on that element that there was already the history of this movie in the park, um, it wouldn't have felt so long overdue. Um, but I'm excited to see it open. Well, they and, had to... and, and the beignet station is back, so people are very excited. Well, they had to put all of their efforts into letting you know that Splash Mountain is going away. Well, but that's that's what I'm saying. It would have been a lot more well-received if they had focused on what was already there and expanded upon it instead of instead of what this turned into. I'm, I'm not even going <clears> to <throat> get into it now. Well, 
We are interested in hearing what you have to say about the news this week. You can reach out to us on any of our social media outlets or the email address. We'd love to hear your take on some of that news. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. As I said before, we love to hear from you. You can send us an email, monorealradio at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us through our social media. We are on X, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and threads at Monoreal Radio. And for links to everything related to the show, it's online at Monoreal Radio. Radio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.